0: wanted to jump on today to do a video. I I haven't, I've just been too busy to really make videos and contribute to my blog at all. And I probably won't be able to do much in the new year. Um, And so I'm kind of trying to prioritize videos that my friends give to me and say, hey, you should do this video, right? Um, So if people request something, I try to prioritize it. But I just I I unfortunately don't think I'm at a place in my life where I can do a whole lot of extracurricular uh, activities right now. Uh, but nonetheless, I had a friend message me this video. Now, admittedly, they did not say, "Hey, you should uh, make a video response to this." They he just asked me what my thoughts were, and I thought it was important because the conversation, some of the conversations they have in this video, I see happening on Twitter and. My thoughts were kind of lengthy, so I just thought, I'm going to make a video. And this is uh, Dale Partridge, who I don't know much about, but the little I do know, I really like him and respect him. And he's the president of a seminary that specifically trains men to plant house churches. And here is he's kind of making a pitch for um, why people should... Uh, invest in house churches. And uh, so I just wanted to respond to some of the stuff that he said in here. A lot of it I agree with. A lot of it I agree with. Um, But obviously I don't work for a house church. And so I have some disagreements and I just wanted to voice those.
1: That is this. Dale, why house church? Yeah. So this is a question I think
2: a lot of families, a lot of Christian uh, men and women are asking themselves right now, why house church? They want to know more about it. I think that it starts with my experience is that I was looking at my Bible with my left hand and then looking at my Sunday experience in my right hand, and they weren't matching up. And so that was the beginning or the inauguration of the journey of really seeking out alternative expressions of church. I didn't want something that was unbiblical, but I was definitely frustrated with how extra biblical the traditional church had become. The things that we did at church, I wasn't finding in scripture, children's ministry, uh, the pragmatism, the monologue versus a dialogue, the visitor-centric versus the committed-centric focus. Um, There's a variety of those things. I don't remember who said it, but they said that going to church should be more like going to the gym and less like going to the movies. And I thought that was really profound because I was feeling this sense of contributor Christianity. I wanted to be involved, but really I was an inactive spectator. I was having inactive spectator Christianity or audience Christianity.
0: So everything he said so far, I have no problem with. Um, I would caution people. And I'm not saying he necessarily did this, but one of the dangers is I think we are experiencing a lot of refugees from the kind of silly, casual megachurch movement. And I think we've only just begun that. I think it's going to increase. I think people are getting tired of the shenanigans, but there's a danger in overcorrecting. There's a danger in overreacting. For example, I don't have the official study on me, so I apologize if it's wrong, but I've heard... That right now, I think Roman Catholicism is the number one growing uh, Christian quote-unquote denomination uh, in the country. And I think not the only reason, but I think a large part of that is because so many people are overcorrecting. They're so sick of the kind of non-denominational silliness, the big megachurch silliness, that they go as far the other direction they can to just very strict, sacred, somewhat historical liturgy. Um, so I agree that there's a lot of problems with most people experience of church. And I would love the fact to see, I would love to see more people hold their church experience up to scripture and make better decisions. The whole thing about a uh, church should feel more like going, being a member of a gym rather than going to a movie. Uh, again, again, I would casually embrace that or not casually. I would cautiously, isn't what I meant to say, cautiously embrace that. I do agree that worship is a participatory event. You don't go to watch somebody else worship. You go to worship. Um, But I would say, though, however, I think far too many people think that my Christianity is entirely defined by my Sunday experience, right? You can be involved without necessarily having the limelight on a Sunday, right? I mean, we're supposed to be the church seven days a week, so you don't have to necessarily be super, quote-unquote, involved Sunday morning worship to have a involved faith. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, again, yes, worship should be participatory. You should be singing. You should be partaking of the sacraments. Uh, we do confessions of sin public. We do uh, um, confessions of faith. We affirm our creeds publicly. Um, tithing. <laughs> we're going to get to money in a minute, but I think that's an act of public worship. So we're, um, there are ways, and it is important to feel like you are actively participating in worship rather than passively receiving it. Uh, but just, again, want to warn people, don't overcorrect.
2: And so there just started to be a, uh, a rub on my heart, and this is over 10 years ago, And it took a long time to figure out what a biblical expression of house church really looked like. But that was the the sense of, I wanted the deeply connected intimate relationships that were so prevalent in scripture, but not prevalent in my life. Uh, And so Veronica and I started having discussions about that and what that looked like. And we started going from bigger church church to smaller church, to smaller church, to smaller church. It's this place where you go, wow, I'm never going to go back to a traditional function. Now, that being said, we love the traditional church. Absolutely love it. Between us leaving Oregon and planting a house church here in Arizona, we were at a traditional church worshiping the Lord with our brothers and sisters in Christ there. Um, But there is just a sense.
0: Before he qualifies um why he prefers the house church. I just want to say I appreciate what he said um where he's 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 qualified that he's not saying the traditional church is unfaithful or bad or not a true church. And I, I appreciate that and I reciprocate, right? I am not I didn't make this video to say house churches are unfaithful or bad or unbiblical. I think house churches can be done faithfully. I think Building churches, what he's calling the traditional church, can be done faithfully. Uh, I would adhere to the reformed articulation of what defines a church. And uh, if you were to go and look that up, the building never becomes definitive of what makes a church. A church is never defined by its location of where it gathers. So whether you gather in a house, whether you gather in a church, whether you gather outside, doesn't matter Um doesn't constitute a true or false church. So I appreciate what he's saying. And again, it's reciprocated. Um, If you go to a house church, it may or may not be faithful. If you go to a church church, it may or may not be faithful. That's not part of what makes a church by definition, true or false.
2: Of several vital elements that are missing. So that was the drive. There's other parts that we can chat about, but that was the the personal and intimate drive.
1: So I, I have a question for you. You hit on an interesting dynamic. Uh, and, it, and it has to do with the size of churches. Uh, you mentioned kind of coming from a larger church into a smaller church. Why is it that in the church world, we seem to think that larger is better? And, it, and if you think about it, in every other area of life, we want smaller. We want our children in smaller classrooms because we understand there's an educational benefit to that. You don't take your entire extended family with you when you go on vacation, just your immediate family, your wife and your kids. If we acknowledge that smaller is better and, and more effective and preferable, why is it that the, the, the benchmark, the ruler for churches is the bigger they are, the better they are?
2: Yeah, we've all fought for our children's classrooms to be smaller. Uh, and we've all fought for, you know, if you, if you go to a conference and there's a certain influential individual leading that conference, you pay more when there's less people, in, implying that less is more. And it's interesting that there's an inconsistency that we're not applying that same principle to church, where we think is more is better. Again, I generally
0: agree with this, um, but I just I still I I guess I again I just cautiously agree with it. So uh, it is true that in in a lot of situations less is more, and it's also true that I think a church can be too big. I think um, depending on the authority structure, I mean depends on other factors but I think it's very very possible for a church to be too big I think many churches in this country are too big so there is a sense in which I agree that uh, the smaller can be the more productive but nonetheless I think just to compare it to all these other things is a little too simplistic right like um, why do you want your classroom smaller? well because there's a there's a certain purpose to the classroom that I think smaller gets at. Why do you want your family vacation to be smaller? That was kind of a weird example. But again, it depends on the purpose. So uh, the the ideal size of a church is going to depend on what you think the church is supposed to accomplish. And if it's not comparable to what the classroom is accomplishing, then you can't really make the comparison. So just because less is more in lots of other areas doesn't automatically mean it is in the church. We have to determine... What is the purpose of the local church? Why are we there? And then that will help us to determine whether how much size matters. I mean, because again, I would want to ask these gentlemen, like, where do you draw the line? I mean, I can draw the line for my classroom. I could say, ideally, my son would be the only one in his classroom. Just him and the teacher. Is that what you want for the church? Just one single person? Well, no. Right. So where do you draw the line? Uh, at small? Where do you cut off? It seems a little arbitrary. So again, I appreciate what they're saying. I think this should make a lot of Christians sort of take a step back and go, that is interesting. Like, why am I so obsessed when I move somewhere to find the biggest church or one of the bigger churches and go there when in so many other areas of your life, you're not looking for the biggest thing? So I I think that's a really good thought. And again, I don't want to disagree with it wholesale. Um, But I also don't want to just Uh, Swallow it hook line and sinker either. I I think it Yeah, can be dangerous, but it's mostly true Uh, When in reality,
2: it's proving almost on every metric that it's not I mean I think that it's evident that we are designed to only be close With a handful of people 10 to 12 people Uh, There's a reason that Jesus had 12 and not 80 or a hundred or a thousand he preached to thousands um, he was influential to thousands, but he was discipling 12, and, and he was single, right? Didn't have a family. And and so, I mean, if you asked your, your wife and you go, hey, how many friends do we have that are like, we could drop our kids off for a couple nights without even asking and trust that everything's going to be good? And these are, I'm not talking family. I'm talking just friends. You might have two or three families. Right. At most, right? At most. And so we don't have the time to be close with 40 people.
0: So what he's saying here is really important, and it's really helpful. Um, But nonetheless, here's where I start to push back even a little bit more than I have so far. It's interesting. He he mentioned at the beginning of his journey was not just feeling discontent with things in the church that are um, unbiblical. Unbiblical but that he was feeling discontent with things in the church that are extra-biblical. And I think one of the things I would ask is, is it possible for our sense of intimacy to actually be extra-biblical? In other words, how close do I have to— where does the Bible teach me that I have to be this close to every member of the church, right? So to use his example, um, how many families are you comfortable— leaving your church, you know, leaving your, your child with overnight. Where does the Bible say that I have to be comfortable with every single church member? I'm not you know, taking care of my child. I'm not saying it doesn't say that, but I'm just not, I'm just saying, it seems like one of the present things throughout this entire video is this assumption that we need to be extremely close with every single person we go to church to. And if And if there's anybody you're worshiping with that you're not extremely close with, and that church is too big. And I would just kind of challenge that assumption. I think that um, one of... I think the Bible doesn't really talk much about church size. The fact that we know the apostolic church was largely house churches, we know more so through history than we do from Scripture. It's in in Scripture, implicitly. Um, But it's not an emphasis in Scripture. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, the things that oftentimes do get emphasized... Is the oneness of the larger church right? So, um, all the house churches in one region are spoken of collectively. The church in Galatia, the church in uh, Thess, excuse me, Thessalonica, the church in Rome, et cetera, et cetera. So, all these house churches were considered one church, which, by the way, seems to fly against Baptist ecclesiology, right? Again, if if we're just going with. only what Scripture says and the implications of Scripture, then it seems like, yeah, be part of a house church, but that house church needs to be c- gathered under the authority of like a bishop or a presbytery. <laughs> it needs So it seems like he wants to kind of pick and choose. As a Baptist, he kind of wants to pick and choose from Scripture. He wants the house model intimacy without the overriding authority that oversees multiple house churches. All right? But anyway, back to the point. I think most of the Scriptural emphasis is not on this tininess of the church, but for example, you have the Jews in the Old Testament, an emphasis on meeting in the synagogues, not in houses, and meeting in the temple. And that is the pattern that carries over into the local church, is the weekly synagogue meeting. Jesus did not worship in houses. He worshiped in the synagogue. He worshiped in the temple. Um, the early Christians tried to do the same, and they were forced into Solomon's portico, but still not a house. And when Paul went out and was preaching and planting churches, he one of the churches he planted was in a lecture hall, right? And then on top of that, when you look at the dynamics of the Jerusalem church and what we call the proto-deacons, the apostles were so busy that when the, when the issue arose of the Hellenistic Jews, you know, not getting their fair share in the distributions, the apostles appointed what we would I think, not everyone agrees with this, but I think it's safe to call deacons. And sometimes I have to wonder, if my church is just three families in a house, what need is there for deacons? <laughs> like that, it seems like the apostles had a kind of a busy church life, so busy that they had to say, what, what is happening? I'm not aware of this. I don't have time for this. Send so-and-so to take care of it. You know, the very fact that we need deacons suggests to me that there's a, a busier church life that sometimes I can handle. Uh, the apostle Paul in, in the pastoral epistles talks about the order of widows. Widows being added to a list where I think they were getting paid, which is going to again money's going to come up here in a minute, to do ministry work. And again, what's the point of having an order of widows if you go to church with two families in a house, you know? So all I would say is I think he's presupposing an awful lot about Size and intimacy that I don't actually see in the Bible. It's it's not sufficient just to say, look, in Scripture, Acts chapter 2, the church is very, very close. And in Scripture, we know that most of these churches were meeting in houses. That's not enough. That's not enough to prove the point that I have to have a certain level of closeness with every single member of the church. The fact is, is he's right. Like, human beings are not designed to, to be best friends with 100 people. And so... Naturally this is why in bigger churches you sort of naturally have groups of people who become close. And one of the solutions to that is not necessarily to break up the church into a bunch of house churches but to just be content with that, right? People look at that and say, "Oh, look, that's so bad." And I just say, "Says who?" So I just don't see why it's such a problem to be closer with some people in my church than with others. Maybe it is. Um but I'm just I don't think that's been established
2: We have the time to be close with maybe five to 10 people if we work at it. I mean, at a house church, we have, say, 10 families, 12 families. If I wanted to get dinner with every one of those families once a month at 12 families, that's three dinners a week. That's not going to happen. Right. Not when you have little kids. Um, So it might take me two months to get through with a dinner And that's still having a dinner at least once a week or twice a week. Probably more realistically, three months to have dinner with just every family in our 12-family house church. You turn that into a 50, 70, 80-family church, and you might get dinner once every year and a half with your pastor. There's just a lack of deeply connected relationships.
0: Yet again, all that might be true, but if if that's the standard, like if the standards that I have to spend a lot of intimate time with every member of the church and in order to do that if if, like if i define intimacy by having dinner once a week or you know so again how do we accomplish this we've now created a church scenario where i like at bare minimum you have three families in that church depending on the size of the families maybe four And once again, I just don't think that you can establish that that was the church dynamic under the apostles, that they had that kind of an expectation for the intimacy of their church members. So while it's probably true that most of evangelicalism in America and these bigger churches lack community and intimacy, uh, I think that it's possible again to overswing and to set our expectations too high and become, to use his word, extra biblical and just how close I must be, not with just some of the members of my church, but with every single member, right? That I need to know every single member at the same level. And again, if that's the standard, you're you're never going to have more than like two or three families in your church. And I, I would just like to see um, implicit. Obviously, none of this is going to be explicit, but I don't even think there's an implicit case to make that the apostles got col- got. got nervous and uncomfortable whenever there was more than two families in a church ever there was, you know, like he even gave the figure of 40, 50 to 70 people. I don't think you can prove to me that the apostle Paul was uncomfortable with a 40 person church.
2: That um, can be achieved in a larger gathering. And so uh, one thing I want to talk about more, Jason, is this idea of, of institutional distrust. Right, yes. Uh, There's this thing of, I think people are seeing it in every possible category in business and economics and education and medical. And there's this kind of fear of big being dishonest or big having some sort of, you've been in ministry for 20 years. Yeah. And you were talking to me about the one thing you love about house church is that there's no money involved. <laughs> Just
1: talk, talk about that for a second. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges in, in being a pastor and being in ministry uh, is that there are often things that you know you need to say or, or counsel you want to give from the full counsel of scripture. Uh, but, you're often having to decide, do I sugarcoat this? Do I deliver it in the way that it needs to be? Do I deliver it all? Because I am relying on this paycheck to provide for my family. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, like many things in life, when money gets involved, it it does tend to make it more challenging. And you do feel like your hands are tied a little bit. This is the comment I really wanted to talk about. So if you've been bored, if you've
0: checked out, I, I would ask you to please check back in. It might be important for me to begin by saying that I am technically, as, as it stands, a bivocational pastor. So I'm coming from a bivocational place. Uh, and, and I'm going to try to save my comments because I know they're going to talk a lot more about money. Um, but this, so let me just try to limit it to just just the position that your hands are tied when you feed your family with church money because you're, it'll make you afraid to say things that'll make people stop giving. Um, okay, a few things. Number one, obviously there's a general truth to that. no one's no one's denying that um, that's not a temptation that vocational pastors have to fight um, But I have two primary problems with that. The first one is that I actually think in the society where we live, The exact opposite is the case. I noticed this, especially not long ago, I got into um, a very unfortunate situation on Twitter. I made a very, from a Christian perspective, it was a very tame comment. Just basically saying, I think homosexuality is a sin. That's basically all I said. I wasn't like emotional. I didn't use a bunch of triggering language. I, I I just made a comment on a public sports page that homosexuality was a sin. And my whole world blew up because a couple really famous people commented and retweeted it. And so I just, I had death threats. I had to make all my stuff private. It it was just terrible. And I remember thinking, if I lived in the area of the sports team that I commented on, and I had a secular job, I would have lost my job. Or even if not lost it, I mean, my job would have been vandalized boycotted. I mean, it would have been terrible. I remember thanking the Lord I didn't have a secular job to lose. Now, I have a secular job on the side, and that's the job. If if there's any place in my life where I'm tempted to shy away from righteousness because I'm afraid of losing the job, it's not my church job. It's my secular job. Like, why is the assumption? I just love, I see this on Twitter all the time. Pastors shouldn't be full-time Because then they're dependent upon the money. So what should I be? Uh, What about a baker? Should I be a Christian baker? Why don't you ask the Christian bakers in Colorado how easy it is to to, 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 to stand on the truth when you're not a pastor and you're just a baker? Why don't you ask Christian wedding venues and wedding photographers how easy it is to just have a secular job and not have to worry about losing your job when you stand up for righteousness? We live in a world where the people in the public are are far more in, are da- are in far more danger of losing their money for doing and saying what needs to be done and said than I am. My, my pastoral job is far safer than any secular job I could possibly have. So it seems like, why aren't they afraid of losing their jobs? Why, why, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me, as a matter of fact. Another example from Twitter. There was a big Twitter fight that just happened. And well, that kind of happens all the time. And it's it's over whether or not anonymous profiles are okay. Like, is it okay for a person to have a Twitter account, but hide their name and hide their face and just tweet anonymously? And there was a debate amongst Christians over whether Christians should or should not do this. And I'm not going to weigh in on the debate, but here's what I found most interesting. One of the arguments from the pro-anonymous side I was reading is these guys were saying, we have jobs. And if if we want to say the things that need to be said, we're going to lose our jobs. And I just found it so interesting that, now I don't know if these are 100% pastors, but my guess is that a lot of these guys are not pastors. And that's why they have to hide their identity. They're so afraid of losing their income that they have to hide their identity. And they're not pastors. So this notion that, well, you need to have a secular job because then you're not going to do your pastor job faithfully. I'm not going to do my secular job faithfully if I'm crippled by money. Like everyone is in the same boat, not just pastors. So I just, I just think it's a flawed view of reality. The second thing I will say is that because before I started doing some light bivocational work, it's not like a 50-50 split. I'm far more a pastor than I am my other job. And by the way, notice, I'm not going to tell you what my other job is because I'm afraid of losing it. <laughs> so there you go. I'm willing to say I'm a pastor. I'll, I'll give I'll give you the credentials. I'll tell you where my church is. I'll give you my email. I won't let you know my secular job. That should tell you something. But about that, before I started working my secular job, you know, yeah, I'll admit there were times where I would feel tempted to, I'm afraid, you know, this is going to offend people. I know that's somewhat human nature. But you know what would always comfort me? I didn't need to have a second job to be comforted by that. I just needed to have the faith that I could get one. And honestly, I'm, I have a lot of weaknesses as a pastor. I do. But one of my strengths is I've just never been that afraid. I have just always felt pretty confident that, you know, if I said something offensive and the church started to shrink and I needed a second job, that I could find one. You know, I have a degree. I think I could go back and use my degree. Um, so I do agree that a pastor needs something To help him not be crippled by his paycheck, but to leap to, well, you shouldn't be getting paid as a pastor at all, or you should be only getting paid really minimally, I think is a leap too far. Sometimes all it takes is just faith, right? Just faith that the Lord will provide for you if you lose your job. And that's what I have. I have faith that the Lord will provide for me and my family if I lose my job. So uh, again, just to summarize, because I'm really passionate about this. Number one, pastor's jobs are not any less safe, are not any less tempting to be unfaithful than any other job. If anything, in this current society, they're the least difficult to navigate. Uh, and and number two, you can fight the temptation to be enslaved by money without necessarily giving up your pastoral paycheck. That's what I'll say for now.
1: So... In this house church format, that's while we do believe that that a pastor should be, should be paid for his service, uh, it's it's not by design going to be a full time income, and and so you're very much freer to do ministry the way that that is in line with Scripture.
2: Yeah, you don't have a salary in a house church model. Uh, you can receive giving, uh, but it's you're you're bivocational. Uh, it allows you to be free in the way that you speak. Uh, There's a quote by Upton Sinclair that I've twisted uh, that says something like... (laughs) At least you're honest about it. Yeah, it's like, it's difficult for a man to preach on something when his salary depends on him not preaching it. Yeah. And that is so true. And then in addition, like we can reinvest
0: all the money that's used.
2: Okay, so before
0: he moves on into another financial benefit, um, I think everything they just said, I kind of already covered it, but I also want to make the argument that it's not biblical. So I want to read to you What Paul says, and and they think they're following this because they're agreeing, they're at least agreeing that the Bible is clear that if a pastor puts in labor, then the laborer deserves his wages. So I'm glad that they're at least agreeing that a pastor should be paid for his work. But the the question then becomes, is it safe or is it extra biblical to be full-time vocational, to have a salary rather than just sort of get paid piecemeal for whatever the work it is you do? And notice how Paul addresses this. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the apostles, the other apostles, and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So here we have Paul very clearly saying he has a right not just to take some money from the church, but to refrain from another job altogether. And he goes on. And, and again, you can say, well, we're not saying that pastors have to be bivocational by command. We're just saying it's a suggestion because in the times that we live in, you might be tempted to not uh, be faithful if you're completely dependent upon money. Did Paul not live in similar times? Was <laughs> Was Paul's day and age... Just totally accepting of Christianity and there was no pressure to tickle anyone's ears? Was Paul uh, uh, completely oblivious to the temptations that come along with full time? No, Paul's obviously knows the temptations. He knows the societal dangers. And yet he still says we have a right if we desire to refrain from working. And then he goes and he gives examples. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do you require soldiers to be bivocational? Do you require farmers to be bivocational? Do you require shepherds to be bivocational? Well, then why do you require pastors to be bivocational? Paul lumps them all in. Paul's saying work is work. You can be a full-time shepherd. You can be a full-time soldier. You can be a full-time farmer. You can be a full-time minister. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the ploughman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If you have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So again, he continues to link pastoral ministry with these other jobs. Why are you requiring me to be bivocational, but the carpenter doesn't, the electrician doesn't? We're all just working jobs here and we all have temptations, monetary temptations, to be quiet or to be silenced or to go with the flow. I mean, I have teachers in my church. For goodness sake, I have public educators in my church. You don't think that they're under pressure to say certain things, to call kids by certain names, to a to promote ideology, to promote, I mean, for goodness sake, um, everyone's job is in danger in this society. Everyone's money is on the line, not just mine.
2: Used for the landscaping budget or the parking lot painting or the sign or the electric bill, you can reinvest those financial realities into other things locally in your ministry and so-
0: some examples of those other things would be nice but here's the point um i did, again this is something i agree with him on it is true that it can be discouraging for church members sometimes to see how much money it costs if you are in a big building how much money it costs just to turn the lights on once or twice a week how much money it costs to run the air conditioning or the heating you know for a few hours every week um so he, he is right. Again, there are benefits to house church. My general take is that there's pros and cons to both, and they're both biblically faithful. There are benefits to the house church. But I think there are benefits to the big church too. Um, for example, in my experience, if you want to talk about investing money, big churches tend to... And I don't know why, because the math seems like it, it shouldn't work out this way. But there's something about when you're able to pool the resources in a large sum, it's just amazing how much benefit and how far that money can go. When a church can raise a million dollars rather than a hundred dollars, it's just amazing how far it can go. I think that if if you want to compare, you know, who has the propensity to do more with their local investment, I think big churches probably beat the house churches. Um. Maybe not, that's kind of a complicated thing and economics is not my thing, but just generally speaking, to me, one of the benefits, I mean, do you know, Do you, Do you? you know? I used to work, not in a big church by most standards, but a, a larger church than the one I currently work in. And that church had a budget that they just gave to people in need every month. They had a monthly benevolence budget. And so we'd have people come in all the time, seeking help, seeking aid, and our deacons were able to distribute that money and help people. I have people come in here all the time asking for help, and I can't help them. We don't have the budget for it. We don't have enough money for it. Um, now, again, you can say, well, maybe you could take less or whatever. I mean, I'm not saying, sure, maybe in an, Maybe we're being unfaithful. Maybe we could move stuff around. But the point is, is, man, I saw just one anecdotal example of how amazing it is to have faithful leaders stewarding a large budget. Uh, So I think there's a lot of benefits to that. Here's another benefit of house churches. Speaking of people coming in, I mean a benefit of big churches, speaking of people coming in, I have had the opportunity to help people and more importantly, to preach the gospel to people so much because they've come to me asking for help. And you want to know why they come to me? Because they see the building and they know what we are and they know what we stand for. In other words... When a, when a person comes into my town and they're desperate for help, they don't just go knock on doors and say, Are you guys a house church? I'm looking for a pastor. Knock, knock, knock. Are you guys a house church? I'm looking for a pastor. Having a, a physical location where people know a church gathers there and there's a, a minister of the Word of God there, it opens up a huge amount of opportunities to serve people, to preach the gospel to people. I mean, the Lord literally brings lost sheep through my door asking for help. And sometimes I'm able to help them and 100% of the time I'm able to share the gospel with them. There would be so many people who had not heard the gospel from me if I just worked in a house or if I had such a busy second job, I was never here, (laughs) right? So there are benefits to the big church, to bigger churches, I guess, right? So let's not get lost in, you know, it's pros and cons no matter which direction you go.
2: So we already have buildings, they're just houses and, um, I think the big gap, really, as we kind of wrap up this episode is people are just intimidated because they don't know how to begin. It's difficult to take someone to something you've never been yourself. And you you can't explain what you don't understand. And so there's this barrier to entry to house church that we're hoping to solve, obviously, with this podcast.
0: And and I appreciate him talking about one of the Disadvantages of house church is that barrier to entry. And let me push that a little further. If the barrier, if there's a barrier for entry to believers, how much thicker is that barrier for non-believers? Right? How how difficult is it to get a non-Christian to ever come to church with you? Now, here's what he would likely say, and we have a lot of agreement here. Um, based on a comment he made about churches who are visitor-centered versus the committed-centered. And I think he would say, but, well, I I think church is not supposed to be visitor-centered. And I agree with him on that. I think that the evangelical church is visitor-centered, and that's wrong. I think the biblical model of church is God-centered first, and he would agree with that, and then member-centered second. I, I think you actually privilege the members before the visitors. And I think the evangelical church has that flipped. So I, I completely agree with him on that. However, we don't disregard visitors altogether. And, and we know this because Paul talks about when he you know, has the, the section on speaking in tongues, You know, Paul makes sure to bring up one of the, the reasons why he doesn't like people speaking in tongues is because of the way it will look when visitors come upon us. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So while the church is the committed centered and God centered, the church still nonetheless, Paul still gives us some instructions to, Do this with visitors in mind. Do this so that when visitors inevitably come in, they will be edified. And here are a couple questions I have. Number one, to me, this isn't explicit, so I could be wrong. But to me, the implication here is that visitors are just sort of of their own wills stumbling in. Like they were unexpected. Don't speak in tongues because there might be visitors here. So he's not even necessarily addressing the visitors that we kind of drag to church, invite to church. Visitors are just kind of showing up. And the way our culture works, I'm just not sure you ever get that in a house church. I'm not sure... People don't know there's a church there, so they never stumble in. So I think what Paul is saying here makes more sense with a a centralized location where unbelievers know if I want to go to see a Christian church, that's the building I go to. But again, nonetheless... That uh, we still do want, if we're just talking pros and cons, according to 1 Corinthians 14, it is a good thing for visitors to come among us. And that's a good thing. And I think that the house church, one of the it has a lot of pros. One of the cons is that it makes it far more intimidating for a stranger or an unbeliever to, to check you out, to try you out. So again, I'm not saying that that's a, a sinful thing then to be a house church. Not by any means. I'm saying there's pros and cons to both. I admit that there's cons to larger churches and there's pros to house churches, but a con to the house church is that visitors don't want to go. A lot of times visitors can't go. They don't even know about it. And you don't have to be a visitor-centered church to desire visitors and to want them to come.
2: Episode after episode, letting people learn um, what it is, what it's like so that they can feel more confident to
1: establish one of these. No, absolutely. Uh, I, before we wrap up, I want to touch back on one thing that you mentioned. You, you talked about the relational depth and the intimacy of relationships. And I know multiple times, separate from, from this podcast, you and I have discussed the what we would probably call an epidemic of loneliness in society today. I, I think it's really important to touch on, on this topic. How does House Church help with that? Yeah, so last Sunday I actually preached on
2: the New Testament call to one-anothering, this mutual ministering of the gospel. And there's over a hundred instances where this Greek word alelon um, appears. And it's this idea of one-anothering, this deeply intimate relationship uh, you know, confess your sins into one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, um, love one another, be humble towards one another. Um, you know, they're, they're all over the New Testament. Most Christians have not had a chance to experience more than a few of those one another's carried out in their own life. And the, the loneliness factor, this sense of Everything's ten feet wide and one inch deep, where yeah. we're just kind of we ca- we know who each, each other we know each other, but we don't really know each other. Right. House church forces an environment that produces a level of intimacy that's very uncommon to American individualism, and so it, it produ- provides an environment and an ambiance and a structure that takes people to a level of connectedness and dependability and transparency and fellowship that most American Christians have never experienced and i'll say one example on Sundays in a house church we have a period of time where we're allowing anybody from the from the body to share prayer requests and praise reports and in a traditional
0: I just want to say briefly in my church which on a typical Sunday could get anywhere up to 60 people so I think by his standards it's a big traditional church and we do that as well
2: church you you don't get that opportunity no, to share your prayer request. it can't be done yes it can in a house church you're shocked by how many people have prayer requests and how almost every person in the room has something very difficult going on in their life That in a traditional model, you would have never known. And the traditional model is, hey, how you doing? Oh, we're doing all right. Okay, great. Move on to the next person. Right. In the house church, you walk away and you go, my goodness, everybody's life is tough. (laughs) And there's a sense of the sharing of those tough moments and asking for prayer uh, that brings people to a place of closeness that is just rich and solves the vast majority of those loneliness issues because there's real relationship there. There's a reciprocating participating fellowship that's occurring that is like the fabric woven together of Christian life.
0: I would say two things about this. Number one, I'm happy to say he's right. I think that the more intimate the setting and the smaller the group of people, the more naturally that kind of deep relational intimacy is going to be. And so I just go back to my point. I think both models have pros and cons. One of the pros to the house church is it definitely fosters and facilitates deeper relationships easier with less resistance than what he's calling the traditional church. So I agree with him. It's a pros and cons thing. So if you prefer that, then good. Uh, but I will resist. I think that it, that kind of intimacy is achievable at a traditional church, even if not at that level, at a sufficient level. I understand it's harder. I understand it's rarer, more rare, easier to say. <laughs> but it is not impossible. Um, I think that you know, my wife can attest, she's been a part of a church much larger than the one that we're in now. And it was one of the deepest relationships she had ever had um, with people. And it was one of the most edifying times of her entire life. And as much as I know she loves our church now, I think I don't mind speaking publicly for her that, you know, she still misses and loves her old church. And that's okay. I I hope that's the case. I hope if someone moves from their hometown and comes to my church, I hope they fall in love with it. But I hope that they miss their church because that means it was good and it was working, you know. So I, I don't mean that to you know to, to degrade our church at all. but the point is is that even at a church of what I believe was more than a hundred people, she was capable of having deep intimacy and meaningful relationships. So I think larger churches do have to put more work in. I think they have to work harder at it but biblical intimacy can be accomplished beyond the house church but I, but I agree with him it's easier in the house church. that is one of the pros. And so,
2: um, house church does that. Now you need a shepherd who can, (laughs) who can really lead you towards that. Um, and it takes a lot of training and time, which is why we started Reformation Seminary. Uh, but it is absolutely part of that, uh, that journey. And it,
0: I appreciated him saying that it's true, but this leads me to another con In, in the same way that, um, uh, intimacy, there's more resistance. It's it's more of a struggle in the bigger church. I would say to on the flip side, um, lacking authority, lacking proper reverence for authority is easier in the big church and it's harder in the small church. In the small church, it's very, very easy. In the house church, I should say, it's very, very easy to slide into This kind of um, brethren, Anabaptistic, we're all equal, there's no pastor here, we're just going to share Bible stories together mentality. It can be very difficult to um, approach your elders with double honor, with reverence, because you're all just pals, you're all just buddies. It's hard to have any kind of reverence for authority. One example... um, that I will I, I will mention. Now I, I I know I need to qualify it. Okay, I'm not saying that every local church pastor deserves this kind of reverence, but I think that there's a principle here, and this comes from the famous example of uh, in the early church of. Excuse me, I don't know why I keep burping. Ananias and Sapphira, where after they lied to the apostles, they're struck dead. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, not in a house. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Okay, so here's the principle. God gave them Judgment powers and signs and wonders, so that the people would fear them and hold them in high esteem. I am not saying that I should be reverenced like an apostle. I can't do the miracles of an apostle. I don't speak with the authority of an apostle. So, no, I should not be reverenced as a local church pastor like an apostle. But I still think there's a principle here, which is within the church, there is a necessary level of authority where there needs to be a certain reverence and respect for authority. And I think in many evangelical churches, that's lost. And I think especially in smaller churches, it can really easily be lost. Um, in other words, this is what I meant at the beginning of the video when I talked about too much intimacy. If you're so close with your pastor that you've lost respect and reverence and a distinction of authority, then that can be a problem. So again a lot of this video is really just about pros and cons. It's really easy to say, well, here's all the advantages of a house church, but there's a lot of disadvantages too. And I think people should hear both sides and then make the best decision for them and their family
2: does solve that problem.
1: Yeah. You know, it's almost as if, and and this seems kind of a pessimistic way of looking at it, but pain, suffering, difficulty, challenges, disappointment, those are almost universal constants in life, not just in life as a whole, but in the life of believers as well. And, and what is a church if not a place where people gather together, and we bring all of our baggage with us, and we find hope, and we find guidance and direction from God's word and from other believers on what steps to take to move forward uh, with hope in life? And so, it's neat to know about this house church model and that it is uniquely designed to meet those needs.
2: Amen. Yeah, it is. It's a. It's a. We've gone a few centuries with only one way to do church. And there is an alternative that is biblical. And that's really the mission of this show is.
0: Well, it can't meet every need. It can't, right? Because one of the needs we already looked at, Paul said that pastors, if they so choose are allowed to take a full time. So do they not have the right to refrain from working for a living? So, uh, and in a house of a small house church of just a few people can't can't do that by their own admission one of the benefits of the house churches is, is that you cannot provide a salary to your pastor but if i can show that a salary is a biblical need then you need to admit that the house church is actually incapable of meeting at least one need and by the way i think there's a lot of benefits to full time ministry um it's very very difficult for people to go through a difficult time and need someone to talk to, but their pastor's working. It's very difficult. You know, there's there, I can tell you, having experienced it, there are a lot of benefits for the church, not just for me, but for the church to have a minister available to the community. I make, I can make hospital visits. I do that. You know, I'll get a call. uh, Hey, such and such needs. I just show up. I don't have to say, sorry, I'm working or just completely ignore the call, right? So there's a lot of needs that a full-time minister, at least one full-time minister can help meet. uh, And there are needs for him that the house church can't meet. Uh, So I'm just not sure that that is actually true. But I do agree that um, there are, again, there are advantages to house church. I know it sounds like I'm being really negative. Uh, The last thing I will say is he said that this is entirely biblical and that there's really only been one way to do church. I get what he's saying. But in a sense, that's not true. I mean, we've been debating ecclesiology for 500 years now. And, and longer than that, if you take in the Eastern Church's divisions, I mean, we've been debating ecclesiology essentially since the church was founded. So uh, there's been a lot of different ways to do church, whether you're just a house church, whether you're a presbytery, whether you have a bishopric. Um, there's lots of different options, traditional church, uh, congregationalists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, and again, his, his whole point about this is all entirely biblical. Again, to some degree, I think you could challenge that. It I do agree it's biblical in the sense that a house church is capable of having what I think are all the requirements of a church. But at the same time, again, if if you're going to base this off of what we're seeing in Scripture, the house church model was not autonomous. He's a Baptist, right? So he believes in the autonomy of the local church. but. I don't think you could prove that the house churches were autonomous. Uh, I think that there were house churches, but they were all somehow connected as one church. There was one church in Rome and the apostle, there was, there was deacons and pastors over earth. Take a Jerusalem, for example, we know at the earliest stages of the church, there was the Jerusalem church and they all had prototype deacons and the apostles over them. Yet they were probably meeting in houses. So, Again, I just think that this is, maybe he's right, but a lot has to be proved here. I hope people don't just hear the video and go, oh man, he's totally biblical, I should join a house church. Well, is it biblical though? Is he doing it as the New Testament prescribes? I'm not sure. Again, I wanna reiterate, I'm not against house churches. I think they can be done biblically and faithfully, and I think they have a lot of advantages. So if you're part of a house church, glory to God, give it your all. Um, if you are interested in being joining a house church, Find a faithful one. Go do it. Amen. Glory to God. Um, But I would challenge, I, I think it's pros and cons. And I don't think that the traditional model is any less biblical or fulfilling than the house model. That's my position. Additionally, I just want to reiterate, I'm not against Dale Partridge. I'm not against this other gentleman. I'm not against their seminary. They are friendlies. We are brothers in Christ. Not trying to attack them. I just... Again, this is a very small issue to disagree on, but I disagree um, in a lot of ways. So I love them. I hope their seminary thrives. I hope they thrive. Um, but I'm not going to quit my job. <laughs> uh, and I just want to end just briefly with a uh, one more passage from Scripture. This is, you know, a lot of times people will turn to this chapter in Acts chapter 2 is like the epitome of what we're getting at with a local church. And I think there's some interesting things to notice in here. So notice this is as primitive as it gets. This is the early church post-Pentecost under the apostles. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's some controversy over how to interpret some of this, and I'm not going to get into it, but I think I can keep it general. One, this text clearly establishes an overall intimacy in unity that the early church had. They were, they loved each other, they were getting along, there was no divisions, they were, they had all things in common, they were giving their things as to any had need. But there's two things I want to notice. Notice this doesn't say that every single individual within this church knew every other individual equally well. Right? We just don't know that. But just it's just saying, generally speaking, collectively, the Christian church, the Christian community of this area were helping each other and serving each other and loving each other, and there were no divisions. So I again, I want to be careful reading a certain level of intimacy into every individual Christian when the passage is addressing the larger church. But here's the more important thing I want to point out. Notice that this very intimate, close-knit community, which, by the way, based on the numbers at Pentecost, was probably bigger than a few families— So maybe that's the second point. And then the third point is notice how they were able to achieve both a corporate gathering and an intimate home gathering. Because the text tells us again in verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So there was some level of, I'm in the household of my family member and all the things that they talked about in this video. I'm seeing them. I'm, I'm getting closer to them. I'm seeing fathers at work. I'm seeing moms at work. Yeah, you grow so close. So, yes, get in each other's homes. Invite church members into your homes. Uh, break bread together. I, I agree. And this may even be a reference to house churches. There's a big debate over that. So maybe, yeah, there, there was house churches. But notice, what were these people doing? Whether it was just fellowship or whether it was house churches. They were still nonetheless coming together in the temple. They didn't just stay in their house or in their house churches. There was a corporate gathering of all of these people So again, I think it's it's wrongheaded to just assume that the biblical model is the house church model. I think that the Bible has a lot to say about houses coming together to worship, whether it's in the temple, or in the synagogue, or in a church building, or in a lecture, the lecture hall, or in Solomon's portico, or wherever it might be. I think biblical church is when households gather together.